Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host Ashwin Krishnan. In this episode, CISOs on the Tightrope Balancing Act, we speak to Simon Gibson, CISO of Gigamon and former CISO of Bloomberg. In his unique experience as both a security practitioner and a vendor, he offers great insight into what CISOs are faced with today. In his current role as a vendor CISO, he offers advice as to how vendors can bridge the gap between what they're selling and what customers actually need using innovative approaches. So thanks for joining me today. Simon Gibson is my guest. And again, this is another of our chapters in the cybersecurity podcast series. In this case, we call it Cybersecurity Dispatch, which is the name that we've given to these podcast series. And what we typically do is get uh, industry practitioners in security, both in the operator space, enterprise, as well as vendor space, come and talk about us. Uh-huh. Luckily for us, Simon has actually straddled both the vendor side of the house as well as the security practitioners. So it's uh-huh. going to be an interesting discussion. Why don't you talk a little bit about your background that we can get started? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on day one of the RSA conference. I'm getting my bearings and sort of just getting familiarized and going through the keynotes on the floor. I've been working in InfoSec for about 20 years, and it started way back working at uh, AOL and trying to secure music for DRM, yep. and then moved to VeriSign where we were working on, and it had a lot to do with, there was an SSL business, but there was also the ComNet uh, DNS resolution, so we were building right. up scale for ComNet resolution. And then finally, I went to Bloomberg and was the CISO there. Uh, I was at Bloomberg for about nine years. And when I left to come back home to California, which is where I'm from, I got some advice, which was go learn the vendor side. You've only been on the practitioner buy right. side. You've never sold. You don't have an, enough appreciation for that and go learn that. It'd be good, you know, round you out a little bit. So uh, I wound up at uh, Gigamon now where I wind up doing about uh, about one third building and same practitioner. Uh-huh. We still use Gigamon to secure our corporate headquarters. We still run a security operations center. We still test plenty of vendor tools and, and manage a security operations center. But we also do some assistance with uh, customers and marketing and also uh, some outreach and education. So we sort of sell a little bit of what we do in, internally. So, that's, so those are our sort of three things. And one of the reasons we decided to do that was that if you're not hands-on and technical and doing things, mm-hmm. you, you, get, you, age, you get stale pretty fast. Yeah. You know, yep. technology changes. And, and, and I really like the field of security. So being able to be somewhat operational, is, it keeps me fresh. And so it's interesting you mentioned things become stale. Uh, which is true, but the way you were talking about DRM, DNS, mm-hmm. and those are still very relevant today, right? Yeah. We talk about data privacy, except it's not digital rights anymore, yeah. but it's data privacy. And then DNS continues to be kind of the cornerstone of how the internet works today. Right? Yeah. So some, some things have changed, others have not. Uh, so talk a little bit about your tenure at, uh, at Bloomberg. And financial services historically has been kind of leading the torch when it comes to trying out new innovative security and putting yeah. measures in place, uh, being ahead of regulations or at yeah. least and power on part of the regulations. Is there a shift over there? Do you see other industries catching up? Do you see financial services starting to loosen up a little bit? Just kind of educate yeah. us a little bit about that. No, also it starts from simply with, if you think about, so we're, Bloomberg wasn't a bank. It was a financial services data processing company right. that sent enriched premium data to customers through the terminal and they used that to manage portfolios. And But when you think about the f- true financials like banks mm-hmm. and hedge funds and you know the big you know companies like that, if you think about it, they're really, they're using their money to secure their money. 
right? right. So they don't have. It's it's very important that the what they secure stays secure, right? Right, and and that's saying about people rob banks because that's where the money yeah. is. I mean, banks have always had that, right? Yeah. I mean, they've always had to be ahead of most security because, yeah. and, and a lot of it really, really, the truth is. You, there's this saying that says, keep the cost of the attack greater than the value of the target. Mm -hmm. So the bad guy has to work extra hard to get yeah. out of bank. And even yeah. if he does, he only gets a little bit. And then he has a huge, you know, so that's the, that's the theory. And so that's why you see financial services as being ahead because the value is pretty great. It's risk. And, you know, for big things like, like a Bloomberg or a DTCC or, or somebody right. like that, right. there's systemic risk to the whole system or even one of the big banks, right? Correct. There's systemic interrelated risk. So there's a lot of motivation to keep the bad guys out. So that you, you bring up a really interesting point where the money that you put in to secure, because you can actually see the money behind it, right? But in today's digital world, where you're running a CRM program, you're running insights into your product usage, etc., there's so much data collection that's happening. So are you seeing both as a vendor as well as, well as a practitioner that every organization, every vertical starts to realize that they're a bank? Except right. the assets they're securing are digital data, yeah. right? And therefore, do you see that same thinking set in saying, you know what, hey, we have, we have so much data. Data is our only commodity right now that we need to secure. So therefore, we need to be as incentivized or as motivated to secure that. Or is it still like, hey, data is somebody else's problem. Let me deal with that later. You know, I think you have to, there's even at a bank, even at, with the most well-funded organization, you still don't have unlimited resources. Right. There's always so many hours in a day. There's right. only so much you can do. You have to prioritize where to put risk, spend against the risk. And I think, you know, I think where perhaps you were right in not long ago, data and risk was somebody else's problem. Yeah. You know, it was maybe the CIO had a, had a person and maybe they, they took care of a little bit of it. I think even if you don't consider the data that you have as sensitive or something that would put you out of business if somebody mm -hmm. saw it, or you know, the, what you do have to worry about are things like like a ransomware attack yeah. on your system, right? You know, hospital may not have may may, may have confidential data about a patient. It may right. have trials information that somebody wants. But at the end of the day, if a hospital doesn't have any computers, it can't do surgeries. It, you know, it's, it stops the actual, I mean, I want to say the lifeblood, right? But it, uh, so you do have to worry. It isn't just the data that you're, you're taking care of. It's just the holistic system. Oh, is yeah. more apparent. So tell me, I mean, this is really interesting because if a hospital actually got attacked, right, and there was ransomware uh, in play and the hospital actually paid or didn't pay or whatever they did, there's a heightened sense of awareness in that organization and presumably in the industry for a while. But then... Just like a roller coaster, at some point, if there's been no attack for the last two and a half, three years, how does a CISO justify the continued investment? It's almost like, hey, do you need to have compelling events every six months or so to keep security and security spend in the radar? Or yeah. if not, what's the recourse? I think, again, and we, we often forget this looking in from the outside, right. but every organization is different. You know, every organization has different requirements. You know, a hospital may have a high trust or, a, you know, HIPAA that they need to conform to those change. Right. Credit card processor might have PCI to, to worry about and those change. New requirements come along, hidden chip, those sorts. Of, you know, there's always change in technology. So long as technology is changing, the CISO's job is never done. Right. You know, and it's unfortunate to say, but, you know, you bring up a point. We used to sort of make fun of this because the CISO's job is really, 
you go to the, the board or the CEO and you report, hey, we had a good quarter, no, no incidents, and you get yelled at, well, you're not looking hard enough. Like, clearly, you're not yeah. doing it right. You know, yeah. you're, there's something there. I know yeah. it. You're just not finding it. And then if you have a breach, you go back and you say, well, we got a breach. He goes, why weren't you defending that? So the CISO lives in that world. It's, very, right. it's always a little bit of, you know, it's, no one's ever happy. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a very interesting point you make. So are you seeing the, just given the fact that data is becoming so center stage to not just business continuity, but actually business competitiveness, right? Is the understanding of a CISO's job more so today across lines of businesses uh, and the board level more than it was a year, year and a half ago? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, I, I don't know that it's it's specifically 100% because of one type of data or another. Mm -hmm. could be because of ransomware. It could be because of data, right. right? It's possible that companies are realizing that the data they have is important. But I think for, you know, to be fair, there's certainly some level or some number of companies that will look at the data they have and say, only this little bit is important. Right. You know, like for the most part, this is a bunch of open source code we've put together, yeah. but really here's our special sauce. And yeah. that because trying to watch everything in its entirety is almost impossible. Right. But I used to sort of say, if you don't have some kind of a data categorization program, yeah. your most valuable asset is equal to your least valuable asset. Right. They're all the same if you don't really have a way to, to manage that. And I, I do think companies are looking at, you know, whether it's employee data and GDPR, because there's a big fine if you're not yeah. compliant, right? I and mean, that's people are going to have a bunch of trouble. I think it's forcing people to take that, you know, some privacy and some ownership right. and to be better, better, better stewards of it. I think for a long time, and look, to be fair, at the end of the day, if a company doesn't have customers writing checks, they don't have a security problem, right? So first and foremost, so you can say security is the most important thing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you don't get paid to generally to write secure software. You get paid to write software. Right. And then the security is always like, we'll come and get to that, right? Yeah. But I think what we're starting to see is people are becoming much more security aware. Microsoft Day in the keynote was just talking about, you know, the partnership with other companies to build secure, mm -hmm. secure products and that that's inherently incumbent upon them to do well at. So that's changing for sure. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about some of the exposés that happened over the last year, right? And Ransomware gets people's attention. Cryptojacking gets people's attention. But you talk about Spectre meltdown. You talk about Apache web servers. You talk yep. about inherent vulnerabilities that's been in the system for, I don't know, 15, 20 yep. years. Yep. How does the CISO go securing budget for that, just given the fact that you have these inherent systems, whether it's Windows servers, be it chips in the case of Spectre meltdown? And is it like a rubber band that's getting pulled on either side where you have these, these new age attacks which get board's attention, which yep. gets you budget, but then you also have this big, long yeah. pile of quote-unquote shit that you have to take care of yeah. that you don't get credit for, right. right? So what? how does CISO kind of deal with this duality? There's a number of approaches. You know, the risk-based approach is what we tend to take, which is we try to categorize all of our digital risk. Mm -hmm. And we try to say, you know, for a certain amount of effort, what's the most bang we're going to get for our buck? Right. So patching, you know, again, if you're a cloud service provider, for example, a row hammer attack, you're going to want to make sure you're not susceptible to memory attacks right. that somebody can break out of a multi-tenant VM. Or if you have a, a problem on a CPU, you're much more finely aware that that's something that you're going to have to go worry about as opposed right. to you're a company that, you know, that makes tires and you have people with computers that do manufacturing and shipping and ordering logistics and payroll. Yeah. All that stuff's important. But, you know, for the way I look at these kinds of things, I think, you know, of the four most risky things, What's the easiest 
to do that's going to get us the most bang? Mm. And then what's the hardest that's going to cost the most that may not get us as much? And I try to weight those things. And like my, the best example is put two factor on your email. Like I can't tell you how many people run their companies without two factor on email. And you're here at RSA buying tools. If you don't have two factor on your email, stop buying tools because somebody's just going to hack. Really, they're going to just reuse a password and reset everything. Password, you know, I mean, I'm going to go in and reset the financial services passwords of all your employees. I'm going to go into the ERP system and the customer management system and your Salesforce because I have the username and password now. Like if you don't have two-factor on email, like everything else isn't going to matter. So go get that done. Like and that, you know, it's going to cost time. It's going to take budget, but you're going to move the needle a lot. So you, you mentioned something that uh, interestingly, I was talking to another CISO yesterday and she was saying the same thing, which is that is basic hygiene, yeah. right? That organizations struggle with because even look at RSA over here, we're talking about so many vendors and the registration is, is going through the roof. So there's a lot of interest over here. But sifting through the noise mm-hmm. has been a challenge for CISOs, mm-hmm. right? And especially now with social, uh, we have some really forward-leaning CISOs who are openly talking about how they learn from each other. But if a vendor comes and pitches something, it's it's either you're in through one ear out through the other yeah. or worse still, they get blacklisted for taking up yeah. the time. So in some sense, what advice do you have, again, having been yeah. on both sides, is how does a vendor cut through the noise, yeah. right? And be actually, if I have a solution that actually comes and takes care of your basic problem, yeah. would I get time of day? Would ventures actually fund me, right? So in some sense, there's also this challenge of saying, okay, unless it's the next big thing out there, I'm not even going to get funded. Right. Even though, like you're saying, the risk of that happening is very, very low. So right. what's advice for vendors? I mean, for the venture is a different, I think it's a different approach than for the vendors. I will say for the vendors, you know, I said earlier, not everybody has the same security problems, yeah. right? At Bloomberg, we would not allow things like WebEx because you could take a WebEx and turn full control of your PC over. Yeah. So I'm sure at some point, somebody was working with someone somewhere yeah. and an employee said, okay, take full control of my PC. Yeah. Somebody remotely logged in and did something that caused something to go wrong. Right. And so right. uh, they said, that's it. No one, we don't trust our employees <laughs> enough to let them do this. And nobody gets WebEx, period. Right. Uh, and if you need something like that, we have a special tool. You can get permission. We'll help you, you know, get through if you actually do need to turn your PC over for somebody to do some remote work. But it's, a, it's not everybody can do right. it. At Gigamon, we don't have that policy. We allow you to use but any any uh-huh. number of WebEx or, or BlueGene or, you know, just uh-huh. if you need to have a meeting, you just we're okay. We, yeah. we have a different tolerance for security. So remember, as a vendor, everybody's security is different. Mm. Everybody has different compliant regulatory concerns. Uh, somebody who's not PCI DSS isn't going to have the same concerns about storing key material right. as somebody who is like a credit card processor. Yeah. They're going to worry much more about how they manage key materials and pin pads. Yeah. So if, you have a, if you're a solution and you target a particular either uh, market, vertical, or type of business, mm-hmm. just remember that you want to talk to the, the, the customer in a way that your solution solves his problem. And if it doesn't, then don't talk to him. Yeah. Like that's the thing to remember is that your solution isn't going to solve everything your customer needs. Right. And the, the thing is to find the customer who your solution really works for, and then you'll have a friend for life in the customer. But if your solution may or may not work and you're just kind of pitching them, giving them the elevator pitch, that's the, where the customer kind of goes, uh. The other thing that makes it valuable for customers also is to bring other customers together. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, CISOs do work with other CISOs. Correct. But often, we lack, in some cases, not all, a vehicle to be together. Yeah. So if a vendor can put together like a, uh, a global customer council, yeah. 
of like-minded CISOs. And then the trick there is to not just have people come to talk to each other, but offer something up, like right. either a right. good speaker yeah. or um, in our case, what we had proposed, we're, we're still sort of noodling through how to do it. We, you know, we had an incident where we did a penetration test on the gig Gigamon. Uh -huh. We found some interesting results as the penetration test. We uh -huh. fixed our product, uh -huh. but it caused us as a company to have to pull all the execs together to start talking about how do we deal with vulnerability? How do yeah. we deal with disclosure? How do we deal with, are we going to start a bug bounty? Do we need a bug bounty? What yeah. does all that mean? Yeah. And so we were going to do a case study and share that with other CISOs about what we learned and how it made our company better. And so to me, as a, as a practitioner, that's a talk I would want to go here. Yeah. And you, you bring a really interesting point because the one of the challenges, and we've seen this with Intel when Spectrum meltdown hit, and we've seen this with Facebook, it's it's almost a pattern over here. So we keep hearing about, hey, we don't know when the breach occurred to actually knowing when the breach has actually happened. But even, even from a vendor's perspective, when you know you have a vulnerability, right, when do you disclose that? Like you're talking about mm. time of disclosure. And there's a lack of trust that develops over time where you start seeing this, hey, this vendor's known about this for years. Right? right. I used to work for a large networking vendor yeah. who had this for 10 years yeah. and wasn't disclosed. So is that mindset also changing? I mean, are you starting to see there's a lot more uh, acceptance of the fact that software will be buggy and therefore once you know about it, you'd rather be able to understand the root cause which is important but also disclose it. Yeah, I think that's true. I know it's hard to say for everybody. I can't speak for the yeah. the, the universe of, of manufacturers. I know supply chain is a big issue in the new with this administration. That the focus yeah. on supply chain and the new laws, especially with China, and yeah. there is a lot of focus going into supply chain and and being a good partner for your customer means you know just fixing bugs. Right. And I mean, I think if you are you know, going back to the early stage company, right. if you release really buggy products and you have to have your customer updating them every two weeks, right. you're going to have a you're customer. Gonna yeah, you're going to have a, yeah, you're gonna have a customer <laughs> who's going to eventually go, what, you yeah. know, enough. But if you come to a customer and say, look, we found something, we think it's, it's serious, you should apply this patch. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine any customer is going to come and say, wow, I really wish you hadn't told me that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I say too, I, I, in my career, wanted to buy, build, and deploy stuff. And I had a team of pen testers who worked for me, and they would find bugs in just about every major vendor software. And, yeah. and, and we got to the point once where, you know, I really wanted a piece of software to roll out. And the guys came, and so we found a really bad vulnerability. <laughs> and I had to say no, like I couldn't buy the product. And because I needed, it would solve a lot of my problems. Right. Is, you know, what I promised in my business plan, right. it, it right. was awesome. But when the rubber met the road, the thing was full of holes, and it would have really put our company at risk, and my guys found it. And the vendor didn't know it was there. And so we had to give them, like, here's your pen test. We can't buy your product. So let's talk about that because that, again, brings up a, a valuable insight, which is if I'm a marketing organization, I'm rolling out a, a new marketing insight, and I have to go through this quote-unquote pen test that the, the CISO's team has uh, mandated. And we go through that. Something comes out. I'm CMO. I have no idea what it means, except the CISO is blocking me from going forward. Yep. Right? So how do we resolve these tensions between organizations where if the CISO and your group understands what it means and therefore you will actually not release the product, yeah. but all of the other businesses who have different compulsions and need to go to market first, yeah. how does that get resolved? I, the way we manage that is we look at the risk, we, we weight it, we say this is you know on a scale of 0 to 10, and we go to the CMO and we say, look, this is a number 10 risk. Okay. You can deploy this, but here's if this goes up in smoke, when you have to go into the CEO, it's, it's you, not me, and you're going to sign right here. And then we track it and we say, you know, 
how long to get it fixed. And the, if the vendor says, you know, we'll have this fixed in the next release, it's a quarter, then the, the CMO might feel better about taking on that risk, getting the project started. And then just out, you know, you might go live and a week later a patch is applied. It's okay. Right. So we, we take that approach where we know nothing's perfect. We don't want to stand in the way of business. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, but at the same time, if we know something's bad, I, I'm going to tell you if you're the business owner and you own the risk, the problem that you get to if you don't do this well is this clutter of incremental risk that piles up. Yeah. It's like you accept one little bit of risk because, oh, no big deal. And then you accept another thing. And then you accept another thing. And the next thing you know, you look under the carpet. It's like a yeah. big pile of risk. Right. And so we track that in it. We wrote a little database and a little tool that tracks it for us. And so we can look at the digital risk across the entire company and say, you know, this is how much you know, this little tiny bit of risk adds to our total incremental risk. Okay. Here's what the spend is going to get rid of it, and here's who owns it. Wow, that looks like a refreshing way to look at things. I'm not sure how many enterprises follow <laughs> that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about cloud. I know you mentioned this uh, earlier in the conversation, which is the move to cloud, uh -huh. right? And especially, let's say, medium to large enterprises where they now have potentially more than one public cloud. They potentially have yeah. maybe fewer data centers than they had in the past, but they still have data centers. And let's talk about cyber skills shortage, right? In this environment where uh, I, I at least need basic AWS skills to set something up, even though it's getting easier by the day, monitoring, which is really what you guys come to, how important is this in a multi-cloud world? And does the cyber skills shortage actually play in the hands of the large cloud providers saying, you know what, you can't set up another data center, sorry, right? So why don't you come and we'll assume. So how do you see that shifting? So really in terms of cyber skills and the impact of security or the, when it comes to having a multi-cloud environment. Yeah. And how does somebody go about dealing with that? There's a cyber skill shortage, I think, because the tools that we've built and the orchestration frameworks that we have are not quite sufficient yet. They're getting there. Yeah. And as we orchestrate, so, you know, at the end of the day, the holy grail of cyber is when you see an event happen on the network, knowing if it's good or bad. Yep. And so for the most part, what happens is an event fires, a human looks at it, yep. takes the context that they know about the organization right. and says good or bad. Yeah. And when tools start to be able to do that, the cyber shortage starts to, we start to not need quite as many people mm -hmm. to draw this context. And yeah. clouds, you know, the problem that most people I've talked to have run into is it building for a specific cloud provider means you're building tools to deploy clouds and stand up regions and build out new machines and do your monitoring mm -hmm. and get your, you know, if you're using Chef and you're building out the particular types of images and different builds, you know, you start to get very tightly intertwined with the cloud you're using. And so, and then when you get to multi-cloud, now you have to have the same security profile from one cloud to the other. Yeah. And maybe there are different operating systems in the clouds. And so you have different people with different, you know, one set of unit right. skills, one set of windows. How do you make the same policy across those? So that's tough. That's just, that's just massively, you know, I think organization helps that, being very organized about it. And being, you never want to touch a machine. You want to try to be as automated as possible. Like where the fewer hands that have to touch something, the more likely is everything's going to be the same. And so the automation part is going to probably play in for getting that right. So, so that's good hygiene and practices for somebody who's kind of going forward. But, I mean, the whole CASB and where it came out with this yeah. shadow IT. So most organizations are in some form of PaaS, IS, SaaS across multiple clouds, right? So in terms of if somebody were to go back yeah. to your risk scoring uh, metrics is what's the risk scoring metric that the CISOs is asked for saying, hey, you know what, tell me how many clouds we are in, tell me what the risk yeah. of a breach is going to happen. And so how do they go yeah. about doing that in the multi-cloud world? Yeah, for if you're looking at all the SaaS and PaaS and all that stuff, I mean, what we did is we started out and we took the approach of 
rather than doing it just to do it, let's do it to make sure everything has two factor. Mm -hmm. So we started there and we have the list of everything because now we need to know if it's going to accept SAML, if we can manage it right. with our two factor. And so now you have the list. Now you can start to score what's in each one, figure out who the owner is and you manage it that way. So like, what's the risk of this? And when you get down to it, what we did is we went and talked to the number of groups across the company, like the head, the leader of each sort of business unit. Yep. And what we did is we said for each one of these things, which business unit would be done? We couldn't operate if this thing was gone. And what we found was the number one thing that everyone had in common, believe it or not, that couldn't operate was the phones. Mm. Like if our phone switches went down, more people couldn't get their work done than anyone wow. else. I think it was five different groups or maybe it was seven different groups would all cease to work without phones. And they could live off their cell phones for a little while, but our old customer support, like the way we book things, like there's a whole lot of things that break when the phones break. The next thing was obviously our customer management database. You know, I mean, that was obviously, right. that's the obvious one is number yeah. two. And, but that's what we did. We went down and said for every one of these, you know, how many groups couldn't work and then pick the highest one. And, and that, again, that's where the focus goes. Very good. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Any last words? I know we are day two or day one at RSA. Yeah. What would a really over-the-top RSA experience for you look like? That's a good question. There's a good talks, like really good talks. Being re you know, I mean, one of the things I found, depending on the year and what's going on in the industry, you know, like 2008 was a really bad RSA. That was uh, the financial collapse that happened. Everybody in security knew how bad things were going to get, uh -huh. and no one had any solutions in 2008. <laughs> and there was no money, and everybody was afraid that the world was going to I mean, 2008 was, it was the worst RSA for me. And I think I didn't come back for a couple of years. <laughs> and then so what I find is every five or six or eight years, there's an inspirational RSA mm -hmm. where you hear that couple of good talks, yeah. and then the message resonates. And you sort of go, oh, okay, I, I hear what – there's a certain message coming through in these talks. Right. And, and I think – I'm hoping that's what will happen this year. Yeah, Very good. Thanks for your time, Simon, yeah, for being pleasure. on the stock. Yeah, yeah. it's great Thanks. having you. Thank you.